0: You know, you don't have to look any farther than your own mirror to know that things have changed in the past 25 years. If you were an infant or toddler in 1987, you could be married with children right now. If you were my age in 1987, roughly in your your mid to late 20s, then perhaps you're an empty nester with grandchildren. If you were my dad's age in 1987, roughly in your mid-50s, then, like I've heard him say a lot recently, you're just glad to still be able to look in the mirror at this point in time. <laughs> Things have definitely changed, but we're not the only ones that have changed. The average cost of a home nearly doubled from 127000 to 234000 The average cost of a car more than tripled from 10000 to 30000 the cost of gasoline in the past 25 years nearly quadrupled from 95 cents a gallon to $3.40 just as of July. The cost of a Super Bowl ad went from 600,000 to $3.5 million. The number of cell phones went from 800,000 representing 0.33% of the United States to nearly 328 million which represents 103% of the United States. The number of Starbucks locations 25 years ago, 17. Now, 20,000. I had to praise God behind me. Their number one grossing movie in 1987, Three Men and a Baby, grossing nearly 168 million dollars. Today, so far in 2012, the number one grossing movie is The Avengers at nearly 618 million dollars. Fred Astaire, Rita Hayworth, Jackie Gleason, and Liberace all died in 1987. Zac Efron, Hilary Duff, and Tim Tebow were born in 1987. (laughs) Along with Red Bull, the California Raisins, and Barney the Dinosaur. Twenty-five years ago, there was no Internet, email, text messaging, Facebook, Pinterest, uh, Skype, FaceTime, Twitter, DirecTV, iPods, iPads, HD plasma, flat-screen television, or GPS. How did we survive? I'm surprised we ever made it out of the 80s. Things have certainly changed in 25 years. Unfortunately... Not too well spiritually or morally. Since 1987, church attendance is down 9%. Bible reading in a typical week down 5%. Church volunteerism down 5%. Sunday school attendance down 8%. Number of unchurched is up 13%. The number of people claiming Christianity is down 10%. The number of people claiming atheism has quadrupled from 1 million to 3.6 million in this country in the past 25 years. Although, thankfully, we've seen a slight decline in abortions in America, we have performed 53 million abortions since 1973, and still half of America believes abortion is not morally wrong. 30% of America, representing 70 million people, say pornography is morally acceptable. Pornography revenues now exceed the revenues of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink, combined. This number has the potential of becoming greater as 42% of 18 to 33 year olds say porn is morally acceptable. With such sexual promiscuity in our country, it's no wonder that in the past 25 years the number of sexual offense cases involving juvenile predators has increased 40%. The number of people claiming and supporting homosexuality is also growing. In 1996, 27% of Americans supported the legalization of same-sex marriages. Today, 53% are in support. We now have seven states, including Washington, D.C., or also with Washington, D.C., who have formerly legalized same-sex marriage. Perhaps the more paradoxical and alarming stats in the middle of this spiritual and moral decline are these. 85% of Americans identify themselves as Christian. Eighty-five percent consider the Bible a holy and sacred book. The typical American family owns four Bibles. There are some 340,000 church congregations in America. That's 6,800 per state. That's one congregation per 900 people. Yet all spiritual and moral indicators are going in the wrong direction in unprecedented proportions in this country. There's obviously a disconnect between claiming Christianity and being a disciple of Christ, and claiming to be a church, and actually being the church that Jesus Christ died and resurrected for. But whatever the changes in the last 25 years, good and bad, the one thing that has not changed and will not change is the message and the mission of Christ to the church for the world. Christ's message is the hope for everyone. And His message is this, to repent and believe the good news. And the good news is this, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Are you thankful for that good news here this morning? And His mission to the church is quite clear. Go and make disciples of all nations. Here's the deal, folks. Whether things turn around remain the same or become worse over the next 25 years, there is coming a day and time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess above the earth, on the earth, and beneath the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Can you give God praise? The message and mission of Jesus Christ to the church for the world is a timeless message. And it's simply this, to make and be disciples of Christ. At Mount Perrin North, we call it Engage Life Together, helping people live a Christ-centered life. And we believe the Christ-centered discipleship life is shaped by the four primary qualities, starting with loving God. Loving God is individually and corporately responding to God's love in Jesus Christ by growing up in our love relationship with Him through prayer, His Word, worship, and all the spiritual practices He so lovingly provided us, that we would be a community that genuinely loves one another by making friends in small groups, that we would truly care for one another and do life together, praying for one another, learning God's Word together, and laughing and crying together, encouraging one another to serve others to meet their needs. That we would use our gifts, talents, and financial resources to touch the lives of people in tangible ways with Jesus Christ. That more people might know the great love story of Christ. That we would be equipped and compelled to share the story, our Jesus story to those that don't know of His great love. That they too might receive Him and love Him becoming Christ-centered disciples. We're about being and making disciples together. It's the message and mission of the church that Jesus Christ has given unto us for the world. But obviously, based on the present, Amer- present American spiritual and moral landscape, the message and mission of the church are waning. It's as though we need a jump start, a relaunch. Perhaps we might say our nation, and even more so, the church is in need of a third Great Awakening. There has been two of what historians call Great Awakenings in this country. The First Great Awakening occurred prior to the revolution in the 1700s, lasting several decades and brought us the likes of Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley. The Second Great Awakening took place in the early to mid-1800s prior to the Civil War, which saw the likes of Francis Asbury, Timothy Dwight and Charles Feeney. As a result of the two revivals, Millions came to Christ in this country. Hundreds of missionaries were raised up and sent out all over the world. Thousands of churches were started and filled. Many orphanages, soup kitchens, clinics, and hospitals were started by the church to care for the needy, the sick, and the elderly. Public schools were founded to educate girls and boys, not just in secular education, but in the Scriptures. Colleges and universities were established to teach not only the sciences, but the Word of God alcoholism, sexual promiscuity, and crime dropped dramatically during those times in this land, and the movement to abolish slavery was birthed. America didn't become perfect. Not every person chose Christ, and not every social ill was resolved during those times. No nation will ever be perfect until Jesus Christ returns. But through their great awakenings, America better lived under the blessing of Psalm 33:12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Can this land become that kind of a nation again? Can the church in this land become that kind of a church again? I don't know. But I know this. If America is going to survive, we need to become awakened again, and the church must be the first to wake up. As we stand here today, 25 years at this location, I can't tell you what this church will look like 10 Or 25 years from now, should Jesus Christ not return. But I can share with you what I believe Jesus Christ wants us to become as we launch out into our next 25 years of ministry. And I believe that is to become a Great Awakening Church. I believe He's saying to us, in our engaged life together, helping people live a Christ-centered life, to really seek to be a Great Awakening Church. What is a Great Awakening Church? I'm glad you ask. A Great Awakening Church is a church of purity. Not purity based on self effort religion mired in a legalistic list of rules and regulations. Not a purity of measuring women's hem lines or men's hair length or seeing how high a woman can stack her hair on her head. But it's a purity that flows from a sold out, devoted love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A purity that says because we love Him so much, we want nothing between us and Him. That we never want anything, no matter how small, to compromise our relationship with Jesus Christ. I think there's so many of us that are like the story I heard of the woman who was in a tremendous hurry. She was late for a meeting and so she was tailgating the guy in front of her. They came to a stoplight, and it was green, but then it turned yellow. And the man had time to go through the intersection, and she was going to follow him, but he stopped for the red light. And man, she just went off in her car, yelling at him, honking the horn, just cussing at him. About that time, a police officer tapped on the window, told her to get out of the car with her hands up. He handcuffed her and took her downtown and put her in jail. After a couple of hours, they released her. And the arresting officer said to her, ma'am, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping the guy off in front of you and cussing a blue streak at him. I noticed your Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. I pray no one gets arrested on the way home today. You see, a pure church doesn't want the trappings of Christianity or to go through the rote motions of doing church. It wants a head over heels in love relationship with Christ. A pure church says because of God's great love for us, because of His amazing grace, because He's slow to anger and overflowing in love, because where sin abounds, His grace abounds all the more. I will dedicate myself to glorify, honor and exalt Christ by my every thought, word and deed. Why? Because I love him. <laughs> Perhaps the American church needs to hear the words of Christ to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. I know your need, your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. You're doing a lot of things well, he's saying. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the heart, the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. There are several qualities of a pure church we could examine, but I'll address one here this morning, and perhaps it's the greatest quality of all. A pure church lives in repentance towards God. Repentance is not a one-time act at a time of a person's conversion. It is a lifestyle Repentance is the key message of Scripture. From the Old Testament prophets to John the Baptist to Jesus Christ to the apostles and New Testament writers, they all preached repentance. And in the book of Revelation, where Jesus Christ addresses the seven churches, He calls five of those churches to repent. And their calls to repentance are to people that don't know Christ. They're to His followers. Repentance is not a religious term. It's a relational term. It recognizes that something exists in my relationship with God that is hindering full open relationship with Him and I don't want it. It's quickly, sincerely, and sorrowfully turning away from the sin that hinders and wanting a full clean relationship with God. Repentance isn't about bartering with God or negotiating with Him. It's not about being sorry for getting caught. It's about being changed. Wanting to be transformed in my attitude and actions that my relationship with God is always ramping up. A repentant lifestyle isn't wondering whether God forgives me or begging Him to forgive me. But it's living in the promise that He gave in 1 John 1.8. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Are you thankful for that promise God makes? No great awakening or revival anywhere in history began without the church living in repentance. Let me tell you about a couple. It's a part of our congregation, a young couple by the name of Josh and Tana Hamby. They had received Christ as their Savior early in life, but weren't really walking with Him when they met and they began to start dating. They chose to live together outside of wedlock. And for ten years they lived together and life was miserable. They knew they were in sin... But it didn't really seem to bother them. But because Christ really wasn't their main concern for life, they were their main concern for life. They struggled in every way over the 10-year period. They fought all the time. They couldn't find steady employment. They were hurting financially. Josh would go out drinking with his buddies. And one time in a drunken stupor, he almost broke his neck in a diving accident. Life wasn't good. And they weren't sure they were going to be able to make it even though they had a child together. Josh and Tana began attending Mount Perrin North. And God's Word by His Spirit began to convict their hearts. The worship of the people began to move on them and they began to realize their sin. Together one night they realized this nightmare had to stop. So they repented and turned their lives to Jesus Christ and immediately life changed. They set a date to be married. I'm performing that marriage in October. They started learning God's Word together. They began attending church regularly. They started tithing faithfully. Josh stopped drinking. They stopped fighting. They both have steady jobs. And they're going to be able to move into a home they never thought they could ever afford. They're being blessed every way, financially, relationally, and spiritually. Oh, they'll tell you they're not perfect. They tell you there's a lot of things God still has to do. What they'll tell you is this, though. They want nothing between them and their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Give Him praise if you believe that. Aren't you glad that the blood of Jesus Christ forgives us of every sin and cleanses us from every stain, and that He whom the Son sets free is free indeed? Aren't you glad of that? Paul said it this way. He said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to ask the question here today as followers of Christ do we want to live less in the wages and more in the gift. A Great Awakening Church is a church of purity, but it's also a church of proclamation. Every Great Awakening Church was known for its commitment to teach and obey God's truth and to bring that truth to bear in tangible works of service to the community. You might say a church of proclamation is rich in good news and rich in good works. Rich in good news means being hungry to learn and teach God's Word. Where God's Word is seen as the primary source of personal discipleship and revival for all nations, ages, and cultures. In the American church today, where only 15% claim to be in some type of a systematic discipleship or mentoring process and only 2% desire to, to disciple or teach others in God's Word, we need a revival of hunger and thirst for the good news in the church today. We need to be like the little old lady who was attending a Bible study at her church and they were studying the book of Acts. She came home one night after that Bible study and she walked into her home and ran into a burglar that was in the process of burglaring her house. The man saw her and turned to run, and the only thing the woman could think to say was a reference out of the book of Acts. She yelled and she said, stop, Acts 2.38, stop, Acts 2.38. The man stopped dead in his tracks and wouldn't move. She picked up the phone, called the police, the police arrived, she told them the story. They went and took the man and they were headed to the, to the police car and the officer couldn't handle it anymore. He said, man, tell me something. Why in the world did you stop just because the woman screamed a scripture reference at you? He said, a scripture reference. I thought she said she had an axe in 238. <laughs> Great Awakening Churches takes God's good news to all people, groups, locally and globally, wherever God will open the doors. Over the past 25 years, God has opened doors to us to proclaim God's word through 14 missionary families in 13 countries. In the last 12 months, to better proclaim God's word, His good news, He's allowed us to plant three new church plants in Kazakhstan and Liberia and brought on three uh, three new missionary partners in Israel, Cuba and China. In the next 12 months, one of our great goals is to establish an underground printing press in a closed Asian nation to print and distribute discipleship materials to proclaim the good news. Right here in our backyard, I am pumped to be able to say that at Lockheed Elementary School, less than one mile from this campus, where 80% of the students are on some form of government assistance God has not only opened a door to us this year to provide weekend meals to 50 of their students, and we've been doing that all year long, but in 2003, listen to this, excuse me, not 3, 2013, we're not going back 10 years, we're going forward. But in 2013, we'll be starting a good news club at Lockheed, where the kids will not only be receiving food, but they'll be receiving mentoring and Bible teaching from several of you in this congregation. Can you give God praise for that opportunity? Rich in good news means having a hunger and thirst to learn and teach God's Word, but rich in good news means actively sharing our faith. In a culture of moral relativism and religious pluralism, where every truth claim is considered to be equally valid and true, a proclaiming church seeks to gently, lovingly, confidently, and boldly defend and share the good news of Christ. But unfortunately, half of those who claim to be born-again Christ followers in America... Say they attempt to share their faith with only one person per year. Simon Peter said it best. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. There's a gentleman that's attending our Canton campus. He and his wife have been attending there for the past three or four months. He's a, he, he was raised a Jew, born into a Jewish household where the name of Christ was never mentioned. When he was 19 years old, he joined the Air Force. And his roommate was a backslidden Baptist. They would go out partying. And one night they were out partying. They were both drunk. And just in the course of drunken conversation, that backslidden, drunken Baptist mentioned the name Jesus. It struck a chord in that Jewish man. And he began to talk to that uh, that drunken, backslidden Baptist about Christ, but he was so drunk he really didn't know what he was talking about. So that Jewish man just literally pulled the gospel out of that drunken, backslidden Baptist. That night, that man gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now... If God can use a drunken, backslidden Baptist to bring people to Christ, what do you think He can do with a group of people who passionately love other people and want them to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has for them? And no, we are not starting a drunken evangelism program. Rich in good news. But it also means rich in good works, which means meeting the needs of people. It's good news in action. I've heard it said and you've heard it said, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. It's counseling the broken, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, caring for the poor. This year, Mount Perrin North volunteers completed a total renovation of a dormitory that now houses 30 young ladies who are now free from prostitution. Now listen to this. Listen to this. We'll not only only be providing Christmas for these ladies and their children this year, but we're going to be renovating a second dormitory in 2013 in order to reach more women who want to get off the streets. Can you give God praise? Christ said it best, when you've done this to the least of these, you've done it to me. A great awakening church is a church of purity, a church of proclamation, and finally, it's a church of prayer. Great awakening churches were and always praying churches. The early church, which was perhaps the first great awakening church devoted themselves to prayer. The Scriptures tell us they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching to the breaking of bread, to fellowship and to prayer. In fact, it was prayer that primarily served to launch the Great Awakenings. It brought conviction upon the church and their need to repent. It ignited a hunger within them to move, to move more passionately in proclaiming the good news of Christ. A Great Awakening Church prays for the nations. God is the God of the nations. He's commissioned us to the nations Therefore, our prayers must reach the nations. In praying for the nations, we need to pray for several things. One, we need to pray for the persecuted church, for the protection and the perseverance of millions of followers of Christ who are being persecuted for their faith. Thankfully, we don't share that as much here in this nation, but I believe with all my heart it's coming. It's coming. God has opened a door to us that we're praying about along with what we're already doing in Israel. We have an opportunity to possibly partner with some Palestinian churches in the Middle East that are under tremendous Muslim persecution. we got to pray for the persecuted church. But in praying for the nations, we must pray for Israel and the Middle East. We must always be a church that stands with Israel and support of her. And we must always (laughs) pray for a nation that will stand with Israel and support her. Well, if you want to give God praise for that, give God praise for that. But we also must pray for the Arab and Palestinian nations. That Christ and peace would come to that region. And in praying for the nations, we've got to pray for this nation. We've got to pray that in God we trust would mean something again. We've got to pray that one nation under God would be more than a motto, but a guiding principle of our government again we got to pray that this nation would always hold to the biblical view of marriage. we got to pray that we would regain a high value of human life and stop killing unborn children. we got to pray that sexual purity would return and the exploitation of women and children and pornography and sex trafficking would cease. we got to pray that families would be restored and abuse, divorce, unwanted pregnancies and neglected children would stop we got to pray that the names of God and Jesus wouldn't be just names of profanity in this land, but they would be names of worship and adoration and exaltation in this country. Give God praise. Give God praise. Give God praise, people of God. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you where it begins. Right here. We got to pray for personal revival. It begins with us, Christ followers. I want to tell you something. Until we wake up, the nation's not going to wake up. Thank you. A voice in the wilderness. We must want purity. We must want proclamation. And we've got to pray for it. British evangelist, Rodney Gypsy Smith, he was an evangelist in the late 1800s, early 1900s. When he would preach before the congregations, this is what he would tell them. Do you really want to see a revival begin? Then go back to your home and draw a circle around you on the floor then get down on your knees in the middle of the circle and ask God to convert everybody inside that circle. When you do that and God answers, you're experiencing the start of revival. Maybe what the message of God to us in this church as we launch out in the next 25 years is we've got to draw the circle. We're going to begin that process here today. We're going to begin that process through a 40-day prayer initiative. There's a little card in your bulletin. Hopefully those things haven't fallen out everywhere. It says 40 days of prayer. I want you to take that if you would, please. Starting September the 24th, it's a Monday. And for the next 40 days, which will lead up to November the 2nd, which is the Friday before our presidential elections, I'm inviting you to become a part of a 40-day prayer initiative. If you complete that card, when you leave here in a few moments, and I am landing this plane, Warren sang about going home at the midnight cry, not at right at noon. Seeing who's out there still with me. <laughs> when we dismiss here in a few moments, our lobby area. If you go through our children's welcome area this direction. There's several tables there. You turn in that completed car, we'll give you a little 40 day guide. Looks like this. Every day it gives a couple of scripture points or, or prayer points with scriptures. And this 40 days is about beginning to pray for personal revival, a renewed nation. In this presidential election that's coming up starting september the 24th every monday through Friday, we're going to open up this sanctuary from 7 a.m to 10 a.m for anybody that wants to come and pray it's not going to be a corporately led time it's for you alone then every sunday night beginning in october october the 7th through all of october and then the first sunday night in november just before the elections we're going to come if whoever wants to and have corporate prayer together for personal revival or a renewed nation in the presidential elections. You can go ahead and begin to fill out that card if you want to. But as you do that, I ask you just to listen to these final words I would like to share. My grandfather Howell, my mom's dad. Great pastor and church planter in central Florida for the Church of God. Before he came to Christ, though, he was somewhat of a hellion. I don't know if hellion's in Scripture or not or not, but you know what I'm talking about. He had a bad temper, he had a foul mouth, he smoked a lot, and he had terrible health in early, his early ages. He and my grandmother, before they came to Christ, one of their neighbors was a devout follower of Christ, and she was a dedicated prayer warrior. Her name was Grandma Fletcher. My grandparents would sometimes be out working in the yard or taking a walk. And they would hear Grandma Fletcher praying in her house. The windows would be open. They didn't have air conditioning back in those days. And time and time again, they would hear their names being called out by Grandma Fletcher. Oh, God bless Eva. God, watch over Gus. God, reveal yourself to them. Time and time again, they kept hearing their names called out in prayer from Grandma Fletcher. Well, my grandfather had his first heart attack at the age of 22. He was bedridden for three months. Couldn't work for 18 months. You can imagine very quickly they used up all their money to pay bills, so my grandmother had to go out to work. But she needed somebody to watch over my grandfather, and guess who volunteered? (laughs) Grandma Fletcher come every day, take care of him. And before she would leave, she would say, Gus, can I pray for you? She didn't preach at him. Didn't condemn him. Didn't tell him he needed to be doing this, that, or the other. Just pray for him. Most of the time he said yes. She would kneel at the edge of the bed and pray over him. My grandmother, after several weeks of that, began to notice a major difference in my grandfather. He wasn't cussing, he wasn't smoking, he wasn't getting so upset. She finally said, Papa, what's gotten into you? Here were his words to my grandmother. Eva, an angel has visited me. I have met Jesus face to face on this bed. And I was ashamed. And I've confessed my sins. So here's something you've got to understand. The legacy of this church rode on the backs of two generations ago of prayers of grandma fletcher she prayed my mama's daddy into the kingdom my grandmother into the kingdom they gave birth to a daughter by the name of carmelita who said yes to a man by the name of paul walker because she was the only one that would ever say yes to the man named paul walker I'm sorry, Dad. I really, really am. I'm going to repent in just a moment. Whatever this church is began two generations ago on the backs of a Grandma Fletcher Whatever we're going to be for the next 25 years is going to ride on the backs of Grandma Fletcher's in this building here today. And I want to say this. How many of you are followers of Christ in this room that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt there was a Grandma Fletcher in your life that prayed you into the kingdom I don't want you just to raise your hands. I want you on your feet, and I want you to give glory to God for the Grandma Fletchers that prayed you into this kingdom. Come on, let's give him praise in the house. Let's give him praise in the house. Let's give him praise in the house. house. I'm going to invite everybody to stand, if you would, please. Lord, I give you my heart yeah. How many of you, I'm going to ask everybody to remain still, if you would, please. I recognize the time, but I'm going to ask you, please, please, hold on. Thank you very, very much. How many of you have a and Eva in your life? I mean you have a gus and Eva that you're crying out to God for. Don't quit. Don't quit. But ladies and gentlemen, we gotta draw the circle. We gotta draw the circle. It begins with us a church of purity, a church of proclamation and a church of prayer. Here's what I want to do. Just before we close, I want you to join hands. If it's okay, if it's not, if it's not inconvenient, that's all right. If it, if, it, if it is inconvenient, don't worry about it. You know what? The Lord just convicted me a moment. You may be Augustine or Eva right now. I believe he's saying, come home. He's saying, come home. There's no sin too great. (sighs) (sighs) Uh, (sighs) If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek My face, turn from their wicked ways, and pray. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sins. I will heal your land. Do not shrink back from Me, My people. Come to Me. I am a generous God. I am a grace-filled I'm a God that loves you with an everlasting love. Just as the Father received His prodigal when He returned, I run to meet you when you turn the slightest bit toward me and ask me to forgive you and cleanse you. Seek my face. I, your God, will be found. I'm as near to you as your hands and your feet. I'm as close to you as your breath. I'm your God, and I will pour out my spirit upon those who call upon my name, says the Spirit of the Living God. Can you just lift your hands to Him for a moment? And let's just begin to worship Him. Let's just begin to worship Him. I thank You for the gift of tongues and interpretation. I thank You for the gifts of the Spirit that are still in in use today to speak to His people. We hear You, God. We hear You, God. May we not shrink back. May we draw close to You. We glorify You and praise You and thank You and magnify Your name. There is none like You. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy.